This is episode 337 with doctor of physical therapy, professional triathlete, and strength and endurance coach, Caitlin Alexander. Welcome to the Strength Running Podcast. I'm your host, Coach Jason Fitzgerald, and my singular goal is to help you improve your running by getting stronger, racing faster, preventing more injuries, and achieving more of your goals. I'm a monthly columnist for Trail Runner Magazine, a 239 marathoner, and a top 10 finisher in the 3,000-meter steeplechase when I competed for Connecticut College. You can learn more about me and strength running at strengthrunning.com. Now, if you enjoy this show, please support our partners who are offering you some great deals on amazing products that are going to help your performances and overall health. First is my favorite way to hydrate, Element. Element is a delicious, sugar-free, high-sodium electrolyte mix. I love this stuff because it's perfect for endurance runners who are sweating a lot, drinking a lot of water, and because of that can be susceptible to imbalances. If you happen to have a high sweat rate or a very salty sweat like I do, you're going to want all 1,000 milligrams of sodium include an element. Electrolytes play a key role in helping you avoid dehydration, dizziness, cramps, and tiredness, especially after long runs or workouts. And Element is used by the military, law enforcement, professional sports teams, and they're the official hydration partner of Team USA Weightlifting. You can get a free sample pack with any purchase at drinklmnt.com slash strengthrunning, and they're going to let you try every flavor before you commit. Go to drinklmnt.com slash strengthrunning for your free sample pack. Next is Prevenex, the only supplement company that I trust. And Prevenex has a big announcement. They have recently released their new product, Muscle Health Plus, a combination of creatine, branch chain, and essential amino acids, as well as ingredients to aid protein synthesis and absorption. Use code JASON15 for 15% off your first order at Prevenex.com. Now, if you're a master's runner, if you want to build some muscle, or if you're particularly injury prone, Muscle Health Plus will help you hold on to your muscle and rebound faster from workouts and long runs. See all the details at Prevenex.com and be sure to use code JASON15 to save 15% off your first purchase. Our guest today is Dr. Caitlin Alexander, a physical therapist, professional triathlete, and certified triathlon and running coach. She is the owner of Hue, that's H-U-Performance.com, located in downtown Boulder, where she offers professional bike fitting, physical therapy services, and coaching, including via virtual consultations. Caitlin was previously a guest three years ago on episode 179 of the podcast to discuss long-term injuries. And in this episode, we're answering your questions about becoming more injury resilient, how to address specific injury problems, how to navigate pain, what to do about injuries after a break, lower back pain, and a lot more. Now, if injuries are your kryptonite, I feel your pain. I've had Achilles tendinopathy, IT band syndrome, plantar fasciitis, SI joint problems, pulled muscles, and all kinds of other injuries. But we can structure your training in ways to automatically build injury resilience directly into your running program. Go to strengthrunning.com slash prevention, and I'll help you make 2024 your healthiest year yet. 
And now, without further delay, please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Caitlin Alexander. I am excited to chat with you and just sort of go over all of these different listener-submitted questions, uh, but congrats on the new business and starting to do this for yourself. That's so exciting. Thank you. It is really exciting. Obviously, there's like, there's a little more, it's more time consuming than, you know, working at like kind of under someone at a clinic, but it's, I always equate it to like, like buying a house versus like paying someone else's mortgage and paying rent. So you're like investing in your own business and your own brand. So that, that's really meaningful for me. So it's, it's all work that I love to do. Yeah. And you get to do things your way now, like the, the Caitlin approach with all your experience working with all these endurance athletes and, you know, you becoming a pro triathlete, I think last year, if I'm not mistaken, and you're really putting all your experience to, to work. So I just think it's awesome. No, thank you very much. So I have an exciting episode planned for today. I think it's exciting. I love talking to physical therapists, uh, probably because I was a very injury prone runner at the height of my competitive days. And I sort of wished I could just sit down with a PT and ask them a whole bunch of questions from time to time. So, uh, my, my listeners get to live vicariously through this conversation. So I have sent you a whole bunch of questions and I kind of want to think of this as sort of like speed dating, except it's with a PT and you're talking about your running problems. I fully recognize, Caitlin, that we are not going to solve everyone's injury issues today. Some of these are serious problems. Actually go see a good physical therapist, preferably one who, who actually works with endurance athletes, uh, especially if it's a more serious problem. Uh, but I think for, for small issues, we all should be pretty good as athletes at dealing with little niggles and, and little bits of soreness and things as they come up. I know when you sent me that list of questions, I was like, this is perfect because these are questions that I get all the time, like almost on a weekly basis. And I was like, it would be good to just kind of like have all the answers in one place for people. Yes. So that's what we're going to do right now. So let's get started. Uh, this is a good one because I, I think a, this is going to resonate with a lot of listeners. Here's the question. I have a limited amount of time to devote to training, so I'd like information on efficient injury prevention. Most advice is generic, so I'm looking for specifics on how to stay healthy without a lot of time investment. Ooh, that's a good one. I say that a lot of this really depends, I guess, on your your level of commitment to the sport and um, I guess your competitiveness or, or you know how experienced you are. But um, there are a lot of really simple ways that just, you know, from a daily basis, you can go about um, ensuring that you are giving your body all the tools that it needs to adapt to the training stress and to recover. And a big factor is sleep. Um, and it's something that a lot of a lot of runners don't think about because, you know, they're so concerned with what's hot on the market and, you know, what new um like cream can they put on to decrease pain? What new foam roller can they buy? Things like that. But sleep is where our body recovers, where our cells um, and tissues repair and heal themselves. And so if you're not getting high quality sleep, if you're not getting enough sleep, all of those things can be kind of detrimental to your progress as a runner and your overall risk for injury. So sleep is the number one thing. The second thing is nutrition. And I kind of tie hydration in with this as well. Um, you know, 
Nutrition, what we intake, what we fuel our bodies with determines the health of our tissues and the health of our cells. So if you're not eating enough, if you're not eating high quality foods, all of those things kind of like sleep can really be detrimental to your tissue health. Hydration is a big one too, because our, our tissues, our fascia, I think our fascia is made up of like 80% water. Um, and so dehydration is a huge factor in the development of injuries, um, dehydration and ischemia. So like poor blood flow. Um, and so, you know, if you're not hydrating well on a daily basis, you know, your tissue can get matted down. The fascia can get matted down and sticky and things just don't end up sliding and gliding really well. Um, so those three things don't really cost anything and they don't cost a lot of time. They're things that you're kind of doing on your, in your daily lives anyway. Um, and so those are kind of my top three tips for, reducing injury risk. There are other things as well. You know, I know you talk about strength training a lot with this being the strength running podcast. That is obviously a big one, but I know a lot of runners who don't have time to do anything but work, take care of their family and run. And so they don't have a lot of extra time to devote to all of these little things. But I think there are are still ways you can implement some of that into your daily routine that's not going to be super time consuming. And the, a lot of the runners that I work with, um, if you give them like a strength set or even like a pre-run activation set that's longer than like 15, 20 minutes, the chances of them doing it are pretty low. And so I'm always finding ways to kind of like get the most bang for our buck with like a couple simple things that you can do that take five to seven minutes before you go out to run. Whether that's like some sort of dynamic mobility sequence, some sort of muscle activation. And I I really believe in a lot of activation work before going out to run because I think of it almost like priming your muscles to take on load. You know, especially when you wake up early in the morning, things are kind of sleepy. Um, you've been obviously sleeping. Um, before you put on your running shoes and head out the door, do something for five to seven minutes, just kind of like wake your brain up and your nervous system up and also introduce some load to those tissues. Um, if you've been sitting all day at work, that's another opportunity for you to like, okay, before you put on your running shoes and head out the door, do some dynamic mobility work so that, you know, we are taking your muscles and your joints through the range of motion required for running so that your body is more prepared to take on that load when you head out the door. Running is a stressful sport. And I remind this to all of the runners that I see in the clinic. And it's, it's, it's stressful for the body. And we want to do everything that we can to make sure that our body is prepared to take on those demands. So I have a confession. I went running this morning and I didn't do a warm up beforehand. I got out of my car after sitting down for probably about 25 minutes. And it was the hardest 10 minutes of running I might have ever experienced in like 25 years of running, probably because, you know, it's first thing in the morning, I had been sitting for a while and I've been so used to doing a warm up. That's like one of the things I'm very consistent with. Sometimes a little bit less if I'm d- doing a group run with a bunch of people and they just take off and okay, I guess I'm doing what the crowd's doing now, but it was not good, Caitlin. It was not good. And uh, it was just this very visceral reminder that it's hard to go from couch to running. There's there's really a good place for a helpful bridge in between being sedentary and out there running your normal, you know, easy pace, your zone two effort, whatever that might be. So I'm glad you brought that up. Um, let's move on to our second question. And uh, this one is a little bit more specific. Uh, 
This, this person says, I struggle with tendonitis, but I don't have any issues when I'm running consistently. It happens when I come back slowly after a break every time. During that break, I'm active, but not training. What's going on here? And how could this runner break this cycle? This is actually a really common thing. And this is a great example of why tendons need load for their health. And so it sounds to me like this might be kind of like a tendinopathy that's not quite rehabbed to its fullest potential, um, especially if it kind of keeps coming back when you stop introducing that load. But tendons need load to adapt. So they don't really do well with rest. Um, and obviously rest, when you decrease that, that stressful exposure to the tendon, yes, you can decrease the pain. But the second you get back to running, the pain and symptoms are probably going to come back. The load is really helpful for tendon remodeling and also to just help kind of, you know, get those tendons um, robust to adapt to that load. And so what's happening when you take a rest, obviously the pain is decreasing, things are kind of going back to normal, but you didn't do anything to change the load capacity of the tissue or the tendon or the muscle, that musculotendinous unit. And so when you get back to running, you know, perhaps taking that time off, maybe, you know, you have a little bit of like disuse atrophy or things have kind of, you know, if you're not kind of keeping up with some of the strength routines, things can kind of get a little bit weaker. And so when you go back to running, you're reintroducing the exact same load and then the tendon's having a hard time um, handling the demands. And so over the course of like gradually introducing the running back, the tendon can adapt and, and get stronger and the pain can decrease, but, um, you know, starting out that running program from like, like a big break off, it is pretty common to, especially if you have that tendinopathy, that's not quite rehabbed fully, um, to have those symptoms come up. And so I think the best thing to do to kind of mitigate that and, and resolve that, obviously go see a good rehab specialist, a good physical therapist who, you know, can kind of get you on a tendon loading protocol and get that tendon super strong and robust. So that's, that's not an issue down the road. Um, the other thing too, is during that time off when you're not running, introducing a little bit of load to the tendon through some strength programming. And so that it is, you know, remodeling and it is adapting and it is prepared to take on the demands of running when you do get back into running after that break. How much time does it take for a tendon to start experiencing some of that atrophy that you mentioned? Because I think, you know, if, if you take a week off after your goal race and then you gradually get back into training, that's not really the amount of time that's necessary to cause all kinds of tendon uh, uh, deterioration, is it? I mean, how much time is actually required? No, not definitely not a week. I mean, we're talking like, you know, at like a month to anything longer than that. And it's not really like the tendon that, that atrophies because tendons don't really atrophy, but the muscle that attaches to the tendon, um, that kind of whole unit can, you can just decrease the capacity for it to take on load. Um, and so taking a week off, you know, it's not really enough to do anything. You're not, even from a fitness perspective, you're probably not going to lose that much fitness. Um, I do want to caveat all this by saying that I am a firm believer in taking a true off season you know, at least a couple weeks because we really need to give our bodies the time and all the energy to heal from the season um, and to repair these tissues so that they are in a healthy state when you get back into your next season. And what would some examples be of of loading the the tendon? Is it only strength training? Would you consider 
some plyometric-like activity like hopping or, or some, you know, relatively low-load plyometrics like that during this time off? Like, how do you think about that? I would say it really depends on the irritability of the tendon um, and what, you know, how uh, reactive it is. You know, if it's if you're not experiencing any symptoms, then yes, I would say plyometrics can be really helpful. Um, and you can probably start those sooner than if you were dealing with a reactive tendinopathy. But, you know, I am a heavy believer in strength training. There's a lot of good research out there for heavy, slow resistance training for tendinopathy. So loading with weight, heavy weight slowly. So going through, you know, if you're dealing with like an Achilles tendinopathy, for example, um, you know, going through some sort of calf raise sequence with a lot of weight and slowly, um, you know, we used to think that eccentrics were the way to go for tendinopathy, but, but newer research is showing that, you know, eccentric and concentric both have their benefits. Um, if you're dealing with a reactive tendinopathy that, that is symptomatic and that is to brings on your symptoms too much, I always kind of go back to something simple like an isometric, which is basically just like holding a position um, without changing the the muscle length. So for example, like, you know, holding a calf raise with weight, not going up and down. So something simple like that, where you're still inducing load into the tendon, but we're not stressing it out um, by shortening and lengthening the muscle and tendon unit. So something like that, if you're dealing with um, like a high hamstring tendinopathy, you could do something like super simple, starting basic with like a hamstring bridge exercise. Um, you know, if you are not dealing with a reactive tendinopathy, you could get kind of into some heavier things like squats, deadlifts, um, rear foot elevated split squats, things like that with weight. And that can be really helpful too. I was going to ask you if there was like a hierarchy of least stressful to most stressful ways of loading a tendon. And it seems like it's maybe the isometric type of exercise. And then you move on to either an eccentric or concentric motion. And then finally, perhaps the plyometric type exercises might be the most stressful. Is that somewhat accurate? And would you add anything to it? I would say that that's pretty accurate. Eccentric, just from like a fatigue standpoint, tends to be the most stressful just because you are, when you lengthen, so eccentric basically is like, like the lowering phase in a squat or the lowering phase in um, a heel raise. So the things are lengthening under load. And what happens when we lengthen under load is less and less motor fibers are recruited, but we're still inducing the same load to those muscle fibers. So they, they just get a lot more stress. So you can get a lot more sore from eccentric contraction exercises versus like concentric and isometric. Um, and yes, plyometric, I would say, you know, is probably just because of the, um, the elasticity needed in the tendon and the, and the force production needed to do a plyometric exercise like that and the amount of body weight going through. So like, you know, what we say, like three to four times your body weight when you're running per step that goes through your kinetic chain, um, kind of same thing when you're hopping. And so, um, for really reactive tendinopathies, it's not something I gravitate towards first, unless I know that it's gonna, it's gonna be stable and it's not gonna flare up after. With you talking about eccentric and concentric calf raises, it was giving me flashbacks to the build a better runner workshop that we both attended last year. Do you remember when I probably mistakenly volunteered to go in front of a bunch of physical therapists and, and go do a bunch of calf raises until failure? And <laughs> I didn't actually last very long. And it was, uh, 
It was like, like some people fear public speaking. I fear exposing my physical, you know, weaknesses or imbalances in front of 30 physical therapists. And it was, (laughs) it was like the scariest moment for me in my life. (laughs) You you were a good guinea pig for all of us. I'm glad I could be a guinea pig. (laughs) All right. Well, thank you for for going deep a little bit on tendon health. I think I think for anyone who might be dealing with um, any kind of tendon injury, especially Achilles tendinopathy, I know that seems to be an injury that, that afflicts a lot of masters male runners for some reason. And uh, I think that's going to be really helpful for them. That kind of ties into one of the other questions um, just about like runners and, and running as we age, but we can get to that. There is some running and aging questions that we're going to get to. Uh, let's talk about an issue that I know very little about. Uh, this is a runner who has consistently lower back pain after long runs, especially long runs on trails. It just seems like a rare type of discomfort for an endurance runner. Um, I don't think any of my clients have ever complained about lower back pain. Uh, so I'm just curious, like from your perspective, what do you think might be going on here for a runner who is experiencing lower back pain, but particularly on long runs, especially on long runs on trails? It's not actually as uncommon as you think. Um, and oftentimes it's just a motor control issue or a form related issue. Um, the trail thing is, is interesting um, just because the benefit of trail running is the dynamic nature of it and that, you know, not every foot strike is the same. So you're varying up the, the, the type of load and the the muscle recruitment every step. Um, but low back pain with running when it's a form related issue is most likely related to any kind of, um, like hyperextension of the lumbar spine. And so what happens when we hyperextend is we compress the vertebrae, which can lead to some like joint discomfort, um, you know, if someone is running, like I call it running in the back seat, or they're running too upright, almost leaning back, that can cause a lot of lumbar compression, just vertebrae compression. Um, or if they're leaning too far forward, and then the moment arm for all those muscles on the back of the spine increases. And so now there's more work that they have to do to keep the body upright. Um, those are two kind of more postural issues that can lead to low back pain. Um, when it comes to a motor control issue, especially if it's happening in a long run, if any kind of pain is coming on at some point later in a run, I think fatigue, that's just the first thing that like kind of hits my mind. What is fatiguing in the kinetic chain that's causing these issues? And so with low back pain that kind of comes on later in a run, it it very well could be a strength issue or a motor control issue of either the core. So your ability to resist that rotation while you're running or the hips. So, um, you know, are you using your lumbar spine to help with extension? Are you using your lumbar spine to help with, with, um, pelvic stabilization in the frontal plane? So that side to side hip drop, uh, you know, the lumbar spine tends to be the victim in a lot of circumstances, um, when we do have pain because things above and below the changes aren't working as they should. So for example, if a runner has, um, you know, some, some sort of weakness with, uh, the lateral hip that's causing one hip to drop down. And, you know, over the course of a run, things fatigue and that gets a little bit worse. And now the lumbar spine is going through a lot more lateral flexion and has to kind of help compensate for that. Um, so I can see that a lot. And I see that sometimes with like unilateral low back pain. So just one-sided, 
Um, if you're using your lumbar spine to extend your hip kind of to help out with the glute max, you know, if the glute max is fatiguing as you're, you know, over the course of a run, then your lumbar spine can kind of make up for that. Um, you know, we can tie in hip flexors too, you know, if it's, it's a postural issue or, you know, tightness in the front of the hip that can make it challenging for you to extend through the actual hip joint. And then you might overextend through the lumbar spine to compensate. So there's a bunch of different things that can lead to low back pain. It's never just usually one simple answer. Um, but you know, those are just kind of a couple common things that I see. How would a runner go about figuring out if, their form is contributing to this problem? Should they, should they like take video of themselves? Um, and, and then I guess my follow-up question to that is if it happens later in a long run, do you have to take video of yourself after 90 minutes, two hours of running, or, you know, go to the gym and film yourself for the first couple minutes on a treadmill? That seems to me, maybe like you might be missing the problem because you're not experiencing all that fatigue at the end of a long run, which like you said, might be the thing that's really driving the problem. Yeah, that's a great point. And this is why sometimes I have runners come in and, you know, have them do a run before they come into the clinic. And then we'll do a little video analysis just to see what their form looks like. Um, and so, you know, it, you, I have seen, you know, if runners come in for a running gait analysis and I have them hop on the treadmill and they're really fresh. You can still, you still might be able to see things, um, that could be contributing to that low back pain, you know, later into a run, but they may not be experiencing symptoms at that point. It's kind of like, like a good analogy is like, if you were to go to a party and, you know, I had you just like stand on your foot, stand on the outside of your foot, like for three hours while you're at the party you probably wouldn't feel anything for like the first 20, 30 minutes. You know, you just be like, okay, this is kind of weird. But after an hour, after an hour and a half, after two hours standing on that outside of your foot, you may start to feel something. So it could be something where like, yes, you can see those movement patterns fresh, but it may not be causing issues until you get later down the road when you're, you keep kind of, you know, targeting the same things and hitting the same things. And then it becomes an issue. So so from a strength perspective, what kind of exercises or, or more broadly, even approach to strength training might be the most effective at dealing with these issues? Um, is it as simple as just, you know, your, some of your more traditional weightlifting exercises, or do you need some more targeted types of, of isolation movements? How do you think about that? It, it depends on what the, the root issue is. You know, if it's something form related, postural control related, sometimes you can remediate that with some simple movement cues. Um, you know, change isn't going to happen overnight. It, it, you know, it can take weeks. It can take months to change running form. Um, and I'm, and I'm never usually trying to change things really drastically. There's always, it's more of just like an intrinsic feeling, um, you know, to help improve, but, you know, simple running cues can help with some of the form related issues. If it's more of like a pure strength or a motor control, and I, I mentioned the word motor control before, but it, motor control is basically how your nervous system um, can move your body. But basically, it's the simplest way to describe it. Um, and so, you know, you may not necessarily have like a, a gross motor weakness in a muscle. You may just not be, your brain just may not know how to utilize those movement patterns or to um, utilize that part of your body when you're running. Um, so I think, you know, general strength training exercises can be really helpful, but I think the biggest, the biggest, um, 
hole that I see in a lot of strength programming is the lack of single leg work. And it's, I, you know, if I ever run other comes in here, one of the first questions I'm asking them is if they are on a regular strength program or if they kind of do anything on their own. And then I kind of dive a little bit deeper to see what they're doing, kind of what things look like, what exercises they're doing. And the biggest issue I see is that not a lot of runners are doing pure single leg work. Um, and they might think, you know, a lunge is single leg or doing like a Bulgarian split squat is single leg, but technically yes, but technically no, because you really need an exercise that's going to challenge your balance and stability in all three planes of motion. And those exercises don't really do that. So most of the programming that I do um, for a lot of my runners involves single leg work. So we're working in all three planes of motion. We're challenging the rotational stability of the hip the rotational stability of the foot and ankle and really challenging the balance because running is a single leg sport. And if you can't stand on one leg and balance and do a single leg squat or hop on one leg, it's like the chances of you being able to go out and run 10, 15 miles, like completely pain-free. I mean, there, there are plenty of runners that can run pain-free and can't do a single leg squat. But for most of us, like those are just low hanging fruit areas that you can really work on to improve like your running efficiency and decrease your injury risk. Let's let's spend 30 seconds on single leg squats because pistol squats, single leg squats, I love this exercise, but it's one of the hardest body weight exercises that you could potentially do. How do you think about getting a runner to be somewhat competent at a pistol squat? Because it's, like I said, it's just almost impossible for most of us. It is. And I actually don't program a lot of pistol squats just because the range of motion required to do a pistol squat is not very functional for running. Um, I mean, it's amazing if you have the ankle mobility, like the ankle dorsiflexion mobility and the hip mobility and the spinal mobility to, and the strength to do a single leg pistol squat. It requires but I don't so think many it's skills. So many skills in balance. It's another one, but I don't think it's a requirement to be able to run healthy. Um, a lot of the single leg stuff that I do is, you know, very balance oriented. And then once, once the runner gets good at that balance and stability, then we can load it with weight, but we're moving in different planes of motion. So it's not just sagittal plane straightforward and back. Like we're adding twists, we're adding side bends, we're adding overhead presses, reaches, things like that, that are making that runner work outside of the normal forward and back sagittal plane movement that, that everyone does when they go out. So if single leg exercises have a, a strong role to play in, in keeping you healthy, do you like to program any exercises where you have off balance weight, where you might be doing an exercise and you're only holding weight on your left side or your right side? Yeah, it, it depends on the exercise and depends on what the goal is for that exercise. So if I want to really load up, um, that lateral hip, like gluteus medius, gluteus minimus, TFL, and really get that pelvic stability going, I will put weight in the opposite hand because that increases the moment arm, um, for that pelvis and those muscles to work and just decrease, increases the load. Um, if I don't want to do that or I want to keep kind of help with keeping their center of mass over their base of support, then I'll put it in the same arm but it really just depends on what your goal is for the exercise. Yeah. And speaking about strength training, uh, how do you determine if someone is, is either too sore or tired to actually get in the gym and lift some weights? So for example, one runner likes to do his long run on Saturdays and then he lifts on Sundays, but he's often bringing a lot of fatigue into those lifting sessions. And his actual question is, are there any general predictors to say it is time for a complete rest day or is it 
pretty much idiosyncratic for each runner? That's a great question. I think it really depends on each runner and it depends on where they are in their training program. So if your whole goal with a strength session, say you're like early season, you know, you don't have any big races coming up, but your whole goal is force production in the gym and heavy lifting, you're probably not going to get a lot out of it going into the session really, really fatigued after a long run. So that might be an opportunity where maybe you should move a session to another day after like an easier run or a shorter run. Um, if your goal, if you're trying to, you know, get the most bang for your buck out of a strength session and you really want to challenge like your neuromuscular system and your stability and your balance and you're going into the strength session a little fatigued, that can actually sometimes be beneficial because you're getting more out of it because the body's already fatigued going into it. So it's a little bit more challenging. Um, but I would say in general, like if you're going into a strength session and you're tired, just like even like, um, cognitively fatigued and you're struggling to keep your balance, things just aren't feeling like they're functioning well. You're struggling to produce the force to lift a heavy weight. Um, you know, and you feel like you're not really getting much out of the session. It's probably a good idea to just call it rather than continuing to push and potentially, you know, increasing your risk for injury. Yeah. So the, there's like so many red flags with that. Like you talking about feeling off balance and, and not being able to lift the same amount of weight that, that you might've been able to lift previously. That just strikes me as like, there's some real neuromuscular fatigue going on and you just want to be careful, especially if you're doing single leg work, if you're doing off balance work, because that's where I think some of the injuries can, can occur in the weight room is when you're, you're not doing a bicep curl, you know, you're actually doing something challenging with your legs in an off balance or single leg environment and you're tired and your neuromuscular system is fried. That, that, that's the scenario that makes me nervous as a coach. Absolutely. Or if, if you're handling heavy weight, like barbells and plates, like things, it's just for your own safety, it's probably not the best thing to really push through. Yeah. Cause like lifting heavy weight or even just like having good balance, that is, you know, when we say neuromuscular, it's like, it, it's, it's a combination of skills that require your brain to really activate those muscles. And if your brain isn't really doing its job, then there's some serious fatigue going on, you know? And, um, you know, there's a, a kind of a, a coaching principle I learned a long time ago, where if you're not feeling quite good going into a workout and you do a couple single leg balance exercises and you're falling all over the place, that's a really good indication that you might be too fatigued to actually go do the faster workout. Because I, I you know, when I think about faster workouts, they're actually very similar in my mind to heavy strength training sessions, very high load, very stressful. And they're going to require a lot of that neuromuscular coordination that when you're fatigued is, is one of the first things to go. Yeah. That neural fatigue is, is huge. And it is a really important thing to, to, to monitor. Um, I do a lot of triathlon training, so I'm, you know, split my, my training time between swim, bike and run. And I think running and swimming are two of the most kind of neuromuscular exercises. There's just a lot of, um, a lot of technique that goes into both. And you can tell when things feel off, especially in the water, when your stroke doesn't feel quite right, your body position is, is not optimal and you just like neurally feel tired. And, and, you know, in the instances with swimming and with running, if your form is deteriorating, if you're falling apart, it's probably not a good idea to, to push through. 
Yeah, I actually had this same experience on a long run this past weekend where, you know, I was about two minute, two miles from being done and I could just feel that my form was just starting to fall apart because I was getting really tired. I was running a little bit too fast in the middle um, and I kind of shut it down a little bit. You know, I was like, oh, I'm, I, I don't feel smooth. I don't feel like I have any kind of, you know, this nice rhythm to my stride and it just started feeling very choppy. And that to me is a red flag that, hey, if you go on for another five, 10 miles, or if you start to do something really hard, that is, you know, this risky danger zone in my mind. Absolutely. Speaking of just injuries and, um, you know, actual pain that you're experiencing, how do you know when a pain is just a niggle that, that maybe you can ignore and you can run through? Because I think every runner knows that if you'd never ran through anything you'd probably never run at all. So <laughs> when do you know you can ignore something? And how do you know when the pain is something which might be serious and needs to actually uh, be rested? So I like to talk a lot about stable versus unstable pain. And a lot of runners kind of inherently know when something feels stable and when something feels unstable. When I say unstable, I mean like unpredictable. Um, you can't, you don't quite know when it's going to hit you don't know how it's going to respond to a run. You don't know how it's going to feel later or if it's going to flare up on you. Stable pain is very predictable. You know, you know, for tendinopathy, for example, a little achy, a little stiff at the beginning of the run, warms up, feels good. After the run gets a little bit stiff again, that is stable. And usually the more stable types of pains are okay to run through. And, and I'm a firm believer in, you know, Running being a part of your rehab program, I think for a lot of different injuries, running can and should be a part of your rehab program. You just may need to dial back the volume and intensity. But when I'm dealing with runners who have, um, who are symptomatic and want to continue to run, I usually have three main criteria for running, um, with pain or symptoms or any kind of injury. And that is the pain should not get worse throughout a run. So, you know, typical like tendinopathy type pain will usually feel worse in the beginning of a run and get a little bit better and improve and warm up as you continue on your run. Bone pain. So uh, bone stress injuries, stress fractures, stress reactions, things like that. They don't warm up. So they tend to get worse throughout a run or, you know, throughout any kind of impact related activity. And that's usually a big red flag. Um, so the pain should not get worse as you're running. Um, while you're running, it should be no more than like a three out of 10. So it was like the pain scale, just subjectively, um, the pain should not be significantly increased after a run. So if it feels okay during a run, but you finish and like an hour later, you're hobbling around, that's probably a red flag that that load was too much or, you know, the volume, the intensity, or maybe, you know, things are just too symptomatic and flared up for you to run at this point in time. Um, the pain should also not be lasting for like a couple days after a run. So if you get a little bit of soreness after a run, but by the next morning it feels okay, that's okay. Um, but it, that pain and that, um, increase in symptoms should not be lingering for like two to three days after a run. Um, and the last and most important thing is, you know, you shouldn't be running through any pain that's changing your stride. So if you feel like you're having to compensate and, change the way that you're running, maybe land with your foot in a different way, maybe, you know, have, have a different kind of postural hold to, um, to try to mitigate your symptoms. It's a big red flag that what you're doing, what you're doing is probably too much load for 
whatever kind of tissues that's involved to handle. I was going to ask you about compensating by changing your form. So I'm glad you covered that one. That that to me is like one of the biggest red flags, because if you're running in a different way than you're normally used to running, it might feel good with whatever little niggle that you might be experiencing, but you're putting yourself at this increased risk of developing some kind of other problem because you're running in a way that your body really isn't designed to. So I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that. Um, now let's talk about training as we get older, which is something that we briefly touched on earlier, but you know, what do we need to look out for or work on as we get older? And I had a listener ask, I'm in my fifties and do strength and core training. In addition to running, I'd like to continue running long distances, but want to stay as injury free as possible. What should I be thinking more strategically about as I get into my late fifties and sixties? Yeah. So, I mean, we kind of touched on this earlier, earlier in the episode, but just all of those little things that you can do to stay healthy, you know, making sure you're getting adequate sleep and good quality sleep, making sure your nutrition is adequate and good quality. You're, you're fueling yourself, um, making sure you're staying hydrated. That's especially an important one as we age. Um, cause our, our thirst receptors aren't, aren't as strong. And so, um, it's easy, easier to get dehydrated as we age. Um, the other one too, in terms of strength training, and I, I put this in my runner's programs, pretty much every single runner's program, but especially if they're above the age of 30, um, are any kind of lower extremity strength work, especially like calf raises. So muscle or exercises to strengthen, um, gastrocnemius and soleus. So those are your two big plantar flexor muscles. Um, the, the incidence of calf strains, calf tears, any kind of calf injury as we age goes up exponentially. Um, I was reading a research article, just kind of like looking at these questions, um, cause I wanted to see like, you know, exactly what the research said, but by the time we hit age 30, what's, what is called, um, sarcopenia, which is basically like age induced muscle atrophy and decreased strength. By the time we hit age 30, the muscles in our distal extremities start to atrophy first. So we're talking about like grip strength in our hands, um, you know, strength of the intrinsic muscles in our foot and then play on our flexion strength. So calf strength. Um, and so any runner that's above the age of 30 that comes into my clinic, they have calf raises on, on their program for that reason. And everyone thinks that, you know, well, I run, so my calves must be strong, right? You know, running makes my calves strong, but that's actually not really the case. Running, especially distance running doesn't inherently make our muscles strong because it's such a, such an elastic activity. So we're really, when we're running, we are kind of moving in and out of positions, um, based on that, like the elasticity of our tendons and our tissues. And so we're not really targeting like the pure strength of the muscles, like we would, if we were like sprinting or doing some other like field event and track, um, and so it's extra important as we age that we are implementing that strength programming in to stay healthy and even just for healthy hormone levels, especially for like women, premenopausal, postmenopausal. There's a lot of good research out there for strength training just to help maintain healthy hormone levels. Can you, can you build stronger muscles through certain types of running? And, and you mentioned sprinting and I was going to get to that, but I'm thinking more specifically like like hill sprints or uphill strides where you're running either as fast as you can, or, you know, maybe 800 meter mile race pace. So very much like a controlled sprint and you're going up 
some kind of incline, whether it's slightly gradual on an uphill stride or you're trying to find the steepest hill possible for a hill sprint, is that taking the place of some kinds of strength training or is this distance runner just really hoping to not do calf raises? <laughs> I, th- I think there's a time and a place for for hill sprints and I think they can be helpful to build power, especially prepping for like a hilly race or a trail race or something like that. But they, they definitely don't replace, um, strength training in the gym. Most, most importantly, because you're still moving in that sagittal plane, right? So we're not really challenging the muscles, um, like the stabilizing muscles in the other two planes of motion. And so it's still important for you to get in the gym and work on those weaknesses. Um, and you're still really using that elastic system when you're, you're running up a hill, you're basically just doing kind of like almost kind of like plyometric single leg hops. Um, so we're not quite targeting things in the same way that like a heavy squat or heavy deadlift would. Okay. I'll lift weights, Caitlin. I will. I'll do it. Um, (laughs) (laughs) you're the lead, you're like the last person that needs to be convinced to do that. I know. Well, I I love saying that, uh, I'm just such a, a great cheerleader for strength training, but I'm such a runner. I would rather go run another couple miles than go into the gym and, and do my strength training. But I've, I've been getting in the gym, Caitlin. I've been consistent for over a month now, and I'm starting to feel really good. So uh, there's that. So good. let's move on to our next question. Actually, I want to I go back a little bit. You know, you mentioned a lot of lower leg work important for uh, older runners. It also seems like, you know, all of these principles with injury resilience, with building durability, with taking care of our bodies, it's almost like... We just have to take that up a level when we start getting older, like sleep just as important, perhaps even more important as you get older, staying hydrated. You mentioned your thirst mechanism being decreased later in life. Is it really just paying more attention to the things that we runners sort of already know we should be focusing on to stay healthy? I think that's a big part of it. Yeah. And it, and it's, you know, there our every tissue, every joint in our body goes through this natural aging process, whether we like it or not. And, you know, as we age, we may just have to pay closer attention to some of these things. We may have to spend a little more time to prep before we go out and run. We may have to do a little more, more mobility work after. Um, but, you know, if that means that you can stay healthy while running and run longer and later into life, then for me, that is like undoubtedly worth it. Yeah, one you know I know I mentioned that I didn't do a warm up before my run this morning, but warming up is generally something I'm very consistent with and I have found that the older I get, the more I need a good warm up before I'm ready to even run my normal easy pace. You know, I I've found that especially in the last couple of years, maybe this is because I recently turned 40, that my first mile of my easy runs, which I always just run according to feel, I'm just getting into it, you know, no pace expectations. I have found that mile getting progressively slower over the last two years or so, because I just need that extra five, 10 minutes to get into a groove. And that to me is just such a good everyday example of the aging process. And if I want to stay healthy, I've got to prioritize that warm up. And I think a, a nice little hack is just take your first mile super easy. You know, that's part of the warm up too. Yep. Or go walk for five, 10 minutes before you even start doing like briskly walk. So that can be a great way to warm up too. Um, and, and kind of open up your stride a little bit, but I, I think just 
because of the inherent stressful nature of running, you know, all the little things that we can do to make things feel good from the first step, I think are really, really important. So if that means, like I said before, you know, doing some short dynamic mobility drill or doing a little band work, muscle activation, whatever your preferred exercise is. When I do that before I go out and run from the first step, I feel like things are online and things are clicking versus when I go out and run and I don't do, you know, all of this stuff before everyone. There are definitely days where I don't have time. Um, if I'm really rushed and trying to fit it in between things and I, I definitely notice when I don't and I feel different when I don't, but when I don't, you know, that first smile, like you said, always just doesn't quite click, doesn't feel right. I don't quite feel like my body's responding and, you know, I'm taking it super slow and then I kind of ease into it and feel good. But when I do take those extra five to 10 minutes before I go out and run and do those things from the first step, I feel good. And so it's, like I said, because of the inherent stressful nature of running, you know, and we talk about decreasing injury risk, if that's one way to do it, whether it's that first mile, you know, your form's not quite right. Things just aren't quite online. Um, if we can mitigate that with some of those things before you go out and run, that could be a way to decrease injury risk as well. As a triathlete, do you find that running is is probably the the discipline that requires a more thorough warm up and and maybe swimming and cycling? It's a little bit easier to jump back into it. I think so. Um, I think so for sure because it is impact related versus swimming and cycling are are low to zero impact. Um, but, you know, when I do a bike ride, I do a lot of brick workouts, which are basically, you know, bike to run workouts, just, you know, prepping your body for the demands of a triathlon race. I feel really good when I get off the bike and run because things are warmed up, things are online, my muscles are working versus if I just go out straight and like do an open run without any kind of warm up, it does, it does take a lot of time for me to feel good and warm into it. And it could also just be because I'm tired <laughs> from doing three different sports, but I want to take a little detour. Uh, right after I graduated college, I had a three-month period where I fancied myself a triathlete. When I was running brick workouts, Caitlin, I found that I could run so fast off the bike with such a low perceived rate of exertion, like literally 30 to 45 seconds faster a mile. And it would almost be like concerning to me what is going on there? Can you explain that physiological phenomenon to me? Like, am I just so warmed up, but not tired from running because I wasn't running? I was coming off the bike that I was just so primed just to run pretty fast. What's happening there? I think it sounds to me like you kind of missed your calling there. <laughs> you should have seen me in the water, Caitlin. I am a runner. I just, I'm at the bottom of the pool. I just sink. <laughs> hey, we can work on that. We can work on that. Um, no, but I mean, I mean, that's, that is fantastic that, that, you know, you felt better running off the bike than you, than you did kind of like for an open run. And that just kind of goes to show how well you're able to preserve your running form under some fatigue. And that's a big predictor when it comes to triathlon and, and being able to run well off the bike. And that's like a whole other topic, um, for discussion, but, you know, your muscles are primed, your muscles are warmed up, there's blood flow, your heart is warm. Um, your cardiovascular system is rubbed up. All of those things, um, can contribute to you just getting off the bike and, and feeling like you're ready to run. So that's impressive. Well, that was also 2006. So we'll see if maybe I can do that again at some point. <laughs> I've got one more question for you, Caitlin. And, uh, 
this is an interesting one because this is really going to pull from your your PT experience uh, working with clients. What percentage of all injuries do you estimate to be related to training load error? Hmm. I would say probably 85 to 90%. And so when we say training load error, when I say that, I mean running too many miles uh, too quickly, too too much intensity before you're actually ready to, to handle that. It's basically training too much. Yeah. So I will say when I think of training load error, I think of, you know, you have your training plan that you're following. Are you doing everything within that training plan to maximize your body's ability to adapt to the training plan? And so if you have this training plan written for you, maybe it's, you know, a period where it's a little bit higher volume, but you have other stressors outside of running, you know, stressors at work, stressors with life, stressors in school, emotional stressors, psychosocial stressors, things like that. That to me is all kind of like training load. And so if all those things are inhibiting you from being able to adapt to this running related load, then it's probably too much running related load for you, if that makes sense. And so most of the injuries that I see in here are some sort of training road training load error, whether it's like an absolute error or relative error, you know, things outside of training are making this current training load too much for you. I love this, Caitlin. Yeah. I, I want to talk a little bit more about the difference between absolute and relative load, because I don't think too many runners think about relative load. I think we only think about our training, how, mu- how many miles we're running, our one to two workouts per week, our long run distance, but we don't take into consideration you know, the fact that we might be having relationship drama that's causing us a lot of stress in our life, or we might've just gotten laid off at work and and all these things, you know, I think of it as like stress load. Um, and all that stress has to be processed by your body and you only really have space for so much of it. And I think when I look back on, on my own personal running, you know, I only realized in hindsight that I was able to run so much because I didn't really have too many other stressful things going on in my life. And I have much more respect now for parents, for, you know, people with demanding jobs who are also trying to train really well because they're just juggling so much. Yeah. Stress is stress. Your body really can't differentiate between training stress, emotional stress, psychological stress. You know, when you're in a state of heightened sympathetic, you know, heightened sympathetic nervous system state, and you've got excessive cortisol, flowing through your, um, your vessels, your body just perceives all of that as stress. And so I like to think of it as like, like a battery level. So like where, you know, battery level with that encompasses everything, where is that battery level when you're starting this training program? You know, if you're all the way at a hundred percent and you are fired and ready to go, you might be able to take on a little bit more training load, but if you're only operating from 50%, that training load that you could tolerate at a hundred percent might be too much for you. And so then in those instances, that is still to me a training load error because what you're doing outside of running is not allowing your body to respond to the training and to adapt to it. So you're just incurring massive fatigue and your body's dealing with cortisol from, you know, your professional stress and, I think it's also helpful to to recognize that when we say stress, it's almost like you could almost put in 
you know, uh, stress hormones in place of the word stress, because that's really what our body is dealing with. We're not dealing with stress. We're dealing with the stress hormones that our body is releasing. And that is the stressful part of it. Yeah. And cortisol is catabolic to your tissues. I mean, this is, this is, um, one thing I talk with a lot of my patients about who may be considering like, for example, like a cortisone injection, you know, for to treat an injury or to decrease pain or things like that is like cortisol, cortisone, all of those things can be catabolic to your tissues, meaning that they can cause tissue breakdown. Um, and they can also kind of increase like this inflammatory response, like especially a lot of cortisol, um, you know, in your blood. And so all of those things just make it really challenging for your body to adapt to and to repair tissues and, you know, get things stronger to, to handle the demands of, of a stressful sport like running. Yeah. Very important as for anyone who's really going after a big training block, you know, I I know we're going to publish this sort of at the height of Boston marathon training. A lot of, a lot of runners right now are, are deep in their Boston training for anyone who's going after a PR or really has high expectations of themselves, having this kind of understanding of the outside stressors that could impact your training, I think is super important and will really help you navigate your training in a much more productive way. Um, Kaylin, I'm glad we could, we could figure out injuries today for all runners. So no one is ever going to get hurt again. This was so productive. Well, it's, it's, I always like to say, reduce injury risk or injury risk reduction versus injury prevention. I hate the term injury prevention because there really, there really is no way to 100% effectively prevent an injury, but hopefully listeners will find all of these tips applicable to like their current life and their current training status and be able to implement some of these things to like, you know, help continue a healthy running journey. Yes. We're all about risk reduction. We're never going to get it to zero. I think anytime you're banging out long runs and workouts, you're going to have to accept a certain amount of risk. Uh, Well, Caitlin, thanks so much for your expertise. As always, this is like the three-year anniversary from the first time you were on the podcast. So this was fantastic. And congrats again on starting your own business. Folks can check that out at uh, hughperformance.com if I have that uh, URL right. Is there anywhere else you'd like to send folks? Yeah. So they can check out my website and all my offerings there. And you said it correctly. Nice job. Um, you can also check me out on Instagram, Kate Alexander, C-A-I-T Alexander. And check out the show notes because all those links will be right there in the show notes. So Caitlin, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Jason. And that's our show. Thank you for listening. And if you're a fan of my work on the podcast in this episode, please consider leaving a review or supporting our sponsors. Use their links and discount codes to support the Strength Running Podcast and tell them they should continue sponsoring the show. First, hook yourself up with some free electrolytes. Our sponsor, Element, is offering a free gift with your purchase at drinklmnt.com slash strengthrunning. And this doesn't have to be your first purchase. You're going to get a sample pack with every flavor so you can try them all before deciding what you like best. Now, if you're not familiar with Element, this is my favorite way to hydrate. They make electrolytes for athletes and low-carb folks with no sugar, no artificial ingredients or colors. And I'm now in the habit of giving away month supplies of Element, just boxes of Element at group runs whenever I attend around Denver or Boulder. And everyone loves this stuff. It can also be a really helpful way 
to prevent dehydration when you're doing a long run or if you're doing a really hard workout. Now, if you sometimes feel overly tired or if you get headaches, cramps, or you experience any kind of sleeplessness after long runs or workouts, you might have an electrolyte imbalance or a deficiency. Boost your performance and your recovery, especially if it's hot outside, with Element. They're the exclusive hydration partner to Team USA Weightlifting, and quite a few professional baseball, hockey, and basketball teams are on regular subscriptions. Plus, Element is my go-to morning beverage if I've frequented one of Denver's many breweries the night before, and I want my morning to feel a little smoother. Check them out at drinklmnt.com slash strengthrunning. You'll get a free sample pack with your first purchase, and you can get your hydration optimized for the upcoming season. Finally, get yourself 15% off your first purchase at prevenex.com with code JASON15. Prevenex is a unique supplement company that holds itself to standards that the rest of the industry just doesn't. And they're celebrating the release of Muscle Health Plus this week, which is a unique combination of amino acids, creatine, and ingredients that aid protein synthesis and the absorption of amino acids. This is your anti-soreness supplement. It will help you prevent muscle damage, which is particularly important for aging runners who want to protect themselves from muscle loss and recover faster, especially after long runs or hard workouts. As is true for all of their products, Prevenex adheres to the highest of standards. Their ingredients are clinically proven to do what they say they're going to do. So yes, Muscle Health Plus has ingredients that are clinically proven to improve protein synthesis and the absorption of amino acids, critical for helping promote lean muscle mass, strength, recovery, and better body composition. I've been consistently impressed with all of their supplements and how committed they are to transparent, clinically proven ingredients. From Muscle Health Plus to their other products like Joint Health Plus to Neurofy, Immune Support, Prevenex has you covered no matter what you need. Get 15% off your first Prevenex purchase by using code JASON15 at checkout. Visit Prevenex.com, that's P-R-E-V-I-N-E-X.com, and just remember, they offer a 30-day money-back guarantee where if you don't feel the benefits on their product, you're going to get your money back, no questions asked. All right, my friends, that's the podcast. Thank you for listening. Thanks for being part of this community. And thank you for being so passionate about this sport. We'll talk soon.